The New Disruptors is sponsored by Smile Software. Welcome to The New Disruptors. Please adjust the dial on your listening apparatus to point to the future. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This podcast is made possible by our fine sponsors. Visit podlexing.com for information on how to become a sponsor. David Malky's biography would take about five minutes if I just read it out. You may know him best as the perpetuator of the cartoon Wondermark, but he's also a filmmaker, a movie trailer editor, an author, an entrepreneur, uh, the supreme commander of publicity and promotions at Depotico, a firm that handles merchandise primarily for webcomic artists. He's also available for weddings and bar mitzvahs, aren't you, David? Whatever you want, man. Whatever pays the bills. Well, excellent. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Glenn. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thanks. I think what you call like a polymath or a renaissance man is like, I can't pin you down because I was looking through <laughs> your biography. And every biography I find for you has more detail about one thing than the other because you've clearly – you've had an interesting life so far and you're still a young man, David. So, oh, uh, yeah. I'm very excited. And uh, I, I, I hope <laughs> that if when we have – when we repeat this conversation 10 years from now, I hope it's even more confusing. <laughs> Well, as personally as someone who has like 43 items on the list of things I've done in my life, I, I sympathize. And sometimes one is seen as a dilettante. I'm like, well, no, I've been a journalist for 30 <laughs> years or something, but I have all these other things I'm interested in. I, uh, I've been reading Wondermark for years. I love it. I used to read it in actual print in The Onion. Sure. And I read it online now. And you always captured this great like cognitive dissonance of these great old images and sort of modern sentiments and, and stuck that together. I have no idea – what led you into Wondermark? I've never found the origin story of it. Was it some kind of strange uh, laboratory accident that turns you into a Victorian uh, 21st century gentleman? I feel like every time I, 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 I try and think of what the genesis must have been, I, I find it more fun to invent a new version. Um, <laughs> because it's nothing that I could point to as a, as a lightning bolt from the sky. Uh, and, and I think that's... Uh, I don't know if that's common with other people, although I'm sure it must be, but the idea, the ideas that prove the most lasting are the ones that are just kind of fun and, and whimsical in a certain sense, rather than carefully plotted out and, 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 uh, scripted within an inch of their life. And, and Wondermark started in the same way because I was always a fan of comic strips growing up. I had always read them in the newspaper and I had always been an artist and, and liked to draw and would draw my own comic strips in school. And, and you know, I think this is a pretty common, uh, resume for a lot of people who end up, you know, being cartoonists. And uh, my problem was that I was very impatient with, <laughs> uh, with my with my art. And I and uh, I also am into sort of collecting sort of weird old things. And I happened across this this old book of of engravings. And and I thought, you know, what would be kind of interesting is if you could make a comic strip, but you didn't have to draw it. And I thought that, I, I wonder if that could work, and and so I I tried it, and it turns out that it it does work, and that you can do it, and and you can do it for over and over and over, and 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 uh, over the years it has become something, I think, more interesting and elaborate from just like I'm going to take the easy way out because it's actually in many ways not easier. <laughs> if there's a, a thing I want to have in a strip, I have to find it or create it rather uh, than just draw it. And, if, you know, if, if I need a doctor, I have to find a picture that looks like a doctor or uh, I have to take a picture of a guy and put a, you know, draw like a surgical mask on him and that doesn't look quite right or whatever. So um, it's more of a, 
I mean, it's a collage, but I think the 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 art that it kind of taps into is um, more of an assembly or a sculpting sort of mindset rather than a blank piece of paper drawing mindset, which I think leads it to some different places than 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 maybe another comic might have gone. Right, you've got both. Well, you've put those constraints on yourself that often make for better art. Where you you don't have having a blank piece of paper can be disabling for some people. Yeah, because anything can go there. But you have to find the right art or the right sentiment to work with that art or set up that tension with what you want to work with. Yeah, I mean, I think every cartoonist or, or author has the problem of what do I, what do I do next? Well, you know, what's the next strip going to be about? But I have the freedom if I choose that. If I don't know what it is about, if I don't have a script written or an idea or, or something that I'm happy with, I can just put some art on the paper and move it around and then mm. get it to suggest what it is about. And and so the question is not what's a funny joke but rather what does this bear look like he is saying to this man? And then the conversation will you know stem from there, the expressions that just happen to be on their face or it will at least go somewhere and then if I go back and revise it, then – I, you know, one thing I like to do is go in and sort of tweak, you know, the drawings or change the expressions or just do little things to, to make it, uh, seem like it matches perfectly whatever it's, it's, uh, whatever situation I've created for it. Um, but in a way that doesn't break the illusion that this is actually a found piece of Victorian art. Hmm. It's you know I was thinking the, the the extreme on that end of two is like was it David Lynch's the angriest dog in the world right where it's just Which, the exact same thing every single time yeah I mean it's so Lynch so that's his <laughs> idea of the comic strip was all about like slightly odd dialogue and so forth but that was like you know in, in his case he didn't have to come up with the uh, with he had a frame for everything that was exactly <laughs> right. the same in which to form it. Uh, you know, on the other end are, are people who are spending uh, hundreds of hours on each panel to yeah. make you know, the Windsor McKay's. But <laughs> it's, but you know, I, I'm really curious how you got from your bio talks about the film editing work. Uh, your uh, firearms specialist for film and television. <laughs> You've got a background that was didn't necessarily suggest comics, despite your long, lifelong interest. <laughs> Where, what was your interest before Wondermark? What were the kinds of things you were? working on before you made this big transition? Well, um, I mean, I went to film school, so I have a, my, my degree is in film production. And in fact, what led me to film school was that I was uh, an artist. And I wanted to do comics when I was like in high school and I was only okay at it. But I had, I, I remember I, me and my friend were working on this comic book and it was, it was actually a Superman story that for some reason we decided we wanted to, to, to do it. He wrote it and I drew it. And it was just such an elaborate, like, laborious process that I thought, you know, it would be way easier if I didn't have to draw things. If I, if there was just a, a person and then you have a camera and then they're already drawn for yeah. you. And it's like, oh, wait, I guess that's what movies are. And this was just right in the age, like the late 90s of, like, home video cameras were, you know, were getting cheap and that sort of thing. And um, and so just on a whim, I decided I'd go to film school. And I met a lot of people that have this real lifelong love of and passion for the art of cinema, uh, which I like just fine, but I don't, I don't think it's really quite in my blood. But I, I, I took to it, and I'm pretty happy with the stuff I made in film school and the friends I made there. Uh, but even still, I, I think the visual art uh, side of it was was always present. I was doing posters for my friends' films, and I was doing uh, one of my friends wanted to do an animation, and so I, I worked with him on that, and. When I got out of film school, I moved to L.A. like you do when you move when you graduate from film school. <laughs> and I got a job. I was just looking for any kind of job. 
and my 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 girlfriend at the time then who i i i married later but for for different reasons um she got me a job at the uh at the place where she had been temping and it happened to be a trailer company and i had been I had just found out that that was a separate industry uh, just recently at, at the time. Oh, that's fun. What an interesting progression too because yeah. then you're telling a film because that's a very specific kind of short story you have to yeah. tell. Wow. Okay. And I, and I really feel like – like uh, I mean I, I found that I took to that pretty well too and, and I moved up pretty rapidly in the company and I, I, start, I started doing that professionally after, after a year or two and um, – Ended up moving around and going to different houses and building up a pretty good reel of uh, working for for trailer companies and I worked on a lot of a lot of uh, big movies and I worked on a lot of really bad movies and I worked <laughs> on you know stuff that that nobody ever saw and I worked on stuff that's really great and it was the but whole. I, I bet some of your trailers for the bad movies were really good, right? Because um, that's <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, if it was just a a a process whereby you could do what you wanted, yeah. I think you know I made some pretty interesting early versions and then. You know, it's such a marketing-driven, focus group-led industry that there's there's very little risk-taking involved, and it's uh, it, it got very frustrating for me. And there are a lot of people that can uh, invest themselves in in the craft of it, and uh, and it's a pretty it's a good job, you know, if you can get it. And uh, I found that I was I was frustrated by it um, after after a while. Um, I worked for a company specifically that did. Disney movies primarily mm. and, and sort of was known for doing family movies. And a lot of these movies, like the one I remember in particular was Vin Diesel's The Pacifier uh, was a movie <laughs> that I worked on. And it's, you know, I mean, it's okay, I guess. It's not a very funny movie. It's got a couple, you know, very cheaply done action scenes. And, and the challenge is to take this thing and just to craft it into something that is – entertaining and funny in 30 seconds or in two minutes and if, and frankly it's difficult you know when the material is is not there and you you have this very sort of strict you know formula that that you have to hew to it's it's a very frustrating process um, i've always wondered the some of the trailers i see and i've wondered if this is the difference between a movie that's meant for a very very mainstream audience and the more particular ones some of the trailers tell you the whole thing. You're like, oh, why would I see the movie now? And <laughs> others give you that kind of neat hint and glimpse and that feeling of like prickling skin where you're like, oh, I have to go see this to figure out what it means. Is there a difference in the, in the storytelling? Does it make, is that, am I, am I right? Is like the more mainstream films, they just tell you the story because everybody wants to know the story before they go? Or is that just a, that has to do with the marketing people for a particular film? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, the bottom line is that if, if you, if you need to know why a certain decision was made, just assume it's because that's what the focus group liked. And, <laughs> you know, you'll be right more often than you're wrong. Um, and, oh, man. And like, that's it's, so depressing. I understand and, it's true. But it's so, and look how well it's worked. I just read the New York Times article about how yeah. all these blockbuster films that fail in which are heavily focus group. They spend up to, what, like $300 million on them now. And, you know, many of them will not make back that money or barely make it back because they're focus grouping them. Yeah, like well, and, and, and the thing about focus groups is that when you're a creative executive at a studio who has the responsibility of a movie opening on your shoulders, a focus group is something you can point to and say, well, it should have worked. Oh. I don't, it's not my fault it failed. 
And uh, and uh, so we saw that sort of thing all the time, all the time, all the time. And I mean, f- trailers in particular fall into a, to a pretty strict formula in many cases, in the mainstream cases in particular. And it's not because somebody sat down with a formula and said, nah, from now on, trailers will be like this. It's because the things that didn't work got brushed away, you know, oh, like right. they were the chaff. And so this is sort of the distilled form, like any art form uh, that's meant to be functional. This is the distilled form of the thing that that, that has proven to work, I think. And uh and, you know, it's a piece of marketing. And as tastes change and as audiences sort of become more savvy or as the generations shift, I think that you see differences in the trends of it and the style of it for sure. And I do think that smaller movies are more willing to take risks because I think they are trying to weed out a more, you know, they're trying to target a more discerning audience specifically as a, at, at the expense potentially of the mainstream because these are movies that may not get a mainstream distribution anyway. And so they need the people who are likely to see it to really want to see it as opposed to thinking it's just another cheesy Hollywood, you know, flick that they can skip. But I think it was Robert Zemeckis had a very famous quote where he said that people want to see everything in the trailer because they want to know what they're going to get. They don't want to be surprised. And, and, and I, I speak for the mainstream. And um, I think in some cases that's true. Um, I'm remembering an article I read about the director of – was it Better Luck Tomorrow, I think, mm. was, was the movie? And he was com- – uh, I may be getting this wrong, but the gist of it is that the movie was marketed in a very mainstream way when it wasn't quite yeah. that kind of a movie. And so what happened was that – and this was at the – uh, with the goal of getting, you know, big opening weekend, of course. And then so what happened is that the people who saw the movie didn't like it because it wasn't what they thought they were going to see a movie for. And the people who would have liked it didn't see it because they didn't think it was the kind of movie that they would have liked. And so the result is a movie that, you know, maybe could have had a chance, didn't do very well. And uh, and he was pretty bitter about that, as I recall, in the article. <laughs> so it is, you know, it is delicate. And, and it's it's tricky when we're in a world where opening weekends matter so much that, you know, there's this sort of anything goes feeling about trailers where it's like whatever gets them in the seats on opening weekend and then we can sort of deal with the fallout later. And it's from a craftsmanship perspective, it's kind of fun from a from a creative perspective. You know, it takes a certain type. And and I don't think I was also very young. I mean, I started doing it professionally when I was 23, 24. And um, I felt like I was maybe a little too too like, I don't know, maybe naive is the word, but like I was uh you know, I was optimistic and I was, I was sort of enthusiastic. And Thank God that got beaten out of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm actually glad. I don't think it did, but, but I think the reason is because I, I made a conscious decision at one yeah. point that this was not the way I wanted to spend my life. And, you know, to, to, again, not to knock the people who do, and I have many good friends who, who do that kind of work, and the reasons that they stick with it are, are, are myriad. And some hate it but like the money, and some love the craft of it, and some just punch the buttons, and, you know, it's like anything else. So I was, I guess privileged enough that I could say, you know what, I can do other things and, and this is not the thing I want to, I want to, if I only have so much creativity in my life, I'd rather spend it on my own stuff than on someone else's stuff. But it's clear this has the uh, great impact on storytelling for you though, because you, uh, and you know, I talked to um, Greg Pack who writes, is writing uh, Batman and Superman for DC uh-huh. right now, the comic book writer, and I'll put a link to that show notes. And he, he was talking about his background. He has, went to film school and the first thing he did at film school was make a film called Robot Stories. And then he very naturally went into comic book writing. And I, and I had that same reaction, like, oh, is this, 
are these things parallel? It's like, oh yeah, yeah, because they teach you. It sounds like in film school, you ha- and and then in your work after that, you learned how to break the elements of a story down into these kind of episodic things, which seem to translate really well to the comic book form or the comic form because you know how to tell a story very precisely, or or so it seems to me. Yeah, I, I definitely think that a film education. I mean, and you know, a, a formal film school education, I suppose, in particular. You know, they harp on things like framing the camera and and communicating. You know, the tone of a scene in 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 how it flows from a you know a wide shot versus a close up, and and these are things that a lot of people pick up instinctually. But I had the benefit of having it sort of drilled into me, and it's it's not always you know evident in a four panel comic strip. But I do think that there is a certain vernacular of it that's just baked in. That no matter no matter what I do visually, I sort of have that that. Uh, Sort of that alphabet is 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 internalized already, which is it is helpful, and and I don't realize how how helpful it is until I see you know a comic or something where they don't have that, and I, I realize like oh this is not just like oh you, you you do have to learn this. So hopefully you know hopefully it it's, it it just is becomes a natural part of of the way that that stories are told, and I also think that uh, I didn't realize this for a long time, but. This idea of assemblage, of taking a thing and crafting it into another thing, is Wondermark and is also trailers, mm. and is also oh. things things I've done as a kid. Like when I think back and think to stuff I did as a kid, it's like whether it was taking like pieces of radio shows and like getting them, you know, putting them on tape decks and mixing them together or, or whatever. It, like that was always a huge part of of what I found interesting, and and even now. You know, even when I do things like write stories or, or whatever, uh, or when I design stuff for my books, I have a lot of fun taking something that exists. Like in, in the case of my books, I have these pages of advertisements from, you know, Victorian era newspapers, and then I rewrite them and I, I try and make them into jokes. But it's more satisfying with me to take a thing and try and try and tweak it and try and ape it or try and try and crafted into something new and um I, I i just find that simpler in a way or, or more inspiring than you know back, back to that problem of the blank page yeah the blank page is uh i mean that's that's bedeviled people forever and you know you were in this so you're in this other profession and i you know i don't think i realized that um Wondermark, there's some things that on the internet you feel like we're always there and you couldn't put a pin until you go to Wikipedia, you don't know when it started. And I don't think I realized Wondermark's 10 years old. Yeah, this so year, started, 10 years. So you started, you were still, were you still in the, the trailer job when you started Wondermark or did that I come was. A later? Mm, no, I okay. was. I was working at the trailer company and I was, uh, I just had this, again, I just kind of had this weird idea and I, uh, I started putting comics on, I, I think I made a batch of 10 or 20 the first day or two, and it was just, you know, the real, real simple proof of concept type stuff. And it was like, this, I don't know what this is, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> and I remember I showed, I had, tw- I think I had 20 of them. And I remember I was visiting my friend and I had them on my laptop and I, I, I had him scroll through them. I'm like, look at this comic I just made. And I remember he laughed at one of them. Uh, of the 20, there was one that he just laughed and laughed and laughed at. And I thought, aha, maybe this is something. Maybe this is something. And there's a problem. There's that revelatory thing too. The more you read of some comics, like I'll look through Wondermark and I'll catch up and I'll go back. And then there's a point at which I'm laughing harder and harder. It's the, <laughs> it's the cumulative effect. Like one at a time, it's like, that's amusing. But like the, the preponderance of them, it's like, all right, now I can't breathe. Yeah. Um, well, I, mean, I, I want that. That's good. good. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I did it. And this was 2003, 10 years ago. And 
I had no concept that like web comics was not a term I had ever heard. Um, I kind of understood that there were comics on the internet because I had read Scott McCloud's uh, Reinventing Comics, mm-hmm. which talks a lot about internet distribution and um, a lot of stuff that you know didn't pan out, but it was very very interesting for its time. And uh, and a lot of stuff that did pan out, and, and just in terms of like the, the internet is how we consume media these days. And I had never really had much interest in doing comics the quote unquote regular way. I, I did early on, like I wanted to make a comic and then self publish it and sell it to comic stores and so on. And thank God I never finished it <laughs> because it would have been just a just a fiasco to try and you know like I, that business is is a difficult one to penetrate uh, from, from, from the ground level. And, uh, but the internet is not. And so I, I just, I had this really basic website that uh, I just started putting stuff up on and I started poking around to think like, are other people uh, doing stuff like this? And of course I knew about Penny Arcade and then, and um, Sinfest was around at that time. And uh, so I started to discover that there were these other people that were doing Doing comics, and they had this this sort of vernacular around like how the sites were architected and, and that sort of thing. And so I started like submitting links around and trying to you know sending emails mm. in that very sort of you know wet behind the ears naive way. Like hi Penny Arcade, I link to you. Will you link to me? Sort of thing. <laughs> well, they, they only had I mean they had you know even they were sort of popular then, but they weren't you know anything like this. They're not they not what now. they are now, of course. And uh, there was a you could kind of count on the fingers. I was writing about um, comics on the internet. Uh, just before that, I, was, I wrote a New York Times piece, like in 2001 or 2002, and there were very few web-only cartoons. Mm-hmm. It was mostly people transitioning or you know, trying to do some hybrid between their print career. But I think um, Zach Wienersmith started right around the year before, 2002, with Saturday morning breakfast cereal. Mm-hmm. Penny Arcade had gone through some fits and starts and been around for a while, but they had been on their own. Uh, for a few years, Diesel Sweeties right. was maybe I think Rich might have done that a couple of years before that. So yeah, you had these you know somewhat popular and starting to be well known, but it wasn't like the phenomenon that it became. Right, and and I think I think that benefited. I mean, me uh, because I didn't know what to compare myself to. Really, I mean, there's no way I would look at Penny Arcade and say like, of you know, I'm I'm going to be like that. So I just did my own thing and just kind of put it around and. I think by the time I really started to make an effort, and I just kept making comics and putting them online, and there were some, you know, that uh, were okay, and there were some that I, you know, <laughs> whatever I cringe at, but I think that's true of everybody. And eventually, um, I started to become a little more serious about, like, you know, if I go to Comic Con, like I should, you know, talk to people about web comics and try and figure out sort of what's going on in this, in this, in this world and in, in this community. And so by the time people started I started to meet people and, and and people started to pay attention to the site, I think it was good that I had this huge backlog already in existence. It wasn't like, oh, this is a guy who's got three strips up. It's like, oh, he's been doing this for a while. Yeah. And and I also had had time to figure out my game in that inter- intervening time. And so the stuff I was doing was a little better than maybe it was at the very beginning. And so it uh it was a little bit more polished and I, I felt like I was I was going somewhere with it. So I think that, you know, it helped to sort of fail in obscurity or toil in obscurity while I sort of got my legs under me. And and, and that's so hard. When you think about doing something new today or, or, or someone who starts something new today, there's this weight of expectation, I think, that I think can be 
can be crippling or can at least be nerve wracking. <laughs> you know, it's like where when's my success? When's where's my where's my reblogs? How many how many faves does this have? You know, five minutes later. Let's take a break to talk about one of our sponsors, Smile, the makers of PDF Pen. You know, PDF is a great format, but if you want to do anything other than view a PDF file's contents, you have to spend a small fortune and master complicated software. Or you can turn to PDF Pen from Smile, a program that I've used for years. PDF Pen lets you make corrections, extract information, and erase parts of a file. You can perform optical character recognition to turn images embedded in the PDF into plain text. It's just 60 bucks. If you purchase it via the Mac App Store, you can also store your documents in iCloud. You can use PDF Pen to sign documents either by using a scanned signature or scribbling one with a mouse or a touchpad. I've used it to annotate articles, delete unwanted pages, and optimize the file size of bloated PDFs created by other applications. But wait, if you need even more features, you can turn to PDF Pen Pro, which lets you add form fields that other people can fill out, convert websites into PDFs with working hyperlinks, uh, control document permissions for printing, editing, saving, and there's, there's even more. PDF Pen Pro is just $100. Both versions are a cinch to start using, but Smile also has tutorials to help you take the greatest advantage when you're getting started. Go to smilesoftware.com slash ND, that's like new disruptors, and click on PDF Pen for more information and to get a free trial of the regular or pro versions. Smile is a great supporter of the show, and I'm a great fan of their software. Let them know we sent you by going to smilesoftware.com slash ND. Now back to the show. Well, there were fewer ways to measure things then, right? It was much more indirect, and so you were relying on word of mouth and page hits and maybe people linking and even newspaper articles or, or online articles about what you're doing, right? Because it was, it, we didn't right. have as much measurement. I mean, you had maybe some analytics, but we didn't have that degree of, I mean, Twitter didn't exist. Twitter didn't exist. And, and, and blogs were not even really quite a thing. I mean, they were just sort of coming in, I think. Right. And so the idea of, like you would just have to hope that somebody emailed a link to your strip to their friend, I think was was sort of the main way that it, that that things were being spread, or you know maybe in the very early days of like Dig or Live Journal. So yeah, I think Dig. I remember Dig <laughs> when they used or or Slashdot, right? Sure. And, uh, yep. You know, one hit could take down your servers because they you get a hundred thousand people. But there's also that thing of persistence, like the the one at a time readers you get when people people think they discover something that's wonderful. Yep. Like Wonder Mark, and they they spread it because they want to be that purveyor of taste they to their friends. Be, yeah, they want to be have found the cool thing. Yeah, and then but then you have to figure out like what's the persistence. Like if you're lucky enough, then people you know you get you get a dig link or, or something like that, and people don't just go away. They they use RSS readers or other things. They bookmark your site <laughs> in those days, and it sounds yeah, so primitive. Not anymore. Come back. That's right. <laughs> I'm still an Even, RSS yeah, user. I, I, RSS is great, and it's so sad to me that that Google seems to be like trying to force that away. But all right, well, it's, anyway, it's it's dead, Jim. But well, that's not. I mean, there's still there's there's alternatives. There's a new thing coming out, but sure. um, the, but that but there was that. How do you build an audience? And in those days, right, it was um. It was one at a time, yeah. largely, unless you were lucky enough to get big attention. And then if you got the attention, you were like, how do I get these people to come back again and again and tell their friends? Yeah, and and I think in, in comics in particular, I mean, the, as there started to become a community around – Web comics. I mean, that was something that was pretty valuable. Like, and and the Machine of Death books uh, came about because I was a participant in the Dinosaur Comics message board, 
and I was a fan of Dinosaur Comics, and I sort of I had joined a couple forums at the time for different comics, which also was a thing that is not really now a thing. And the Dinosaur Comics message board, in particular, is called Truth and Beauty Bombs. Was a uh, <laughs> a really really interesting and supportive group of people that I you know it's one of those rare communities that was like a little island in in the sea of, of internet forums you know culture, and it was it was a lot of fun, and it was like a like it was really. Uh, like good people and and good conversations and I just sort of became a part of it because just out of out of fandom and you know started to contribute stuff of my own and of course there's a link in my in my you know whatever forum posts and people started to kind of discover it and and they started to like it and so I just sort of got to know some of the personalities who were already either fans of web comics or in some cases other web comic creators and and then go to a convention and then, hey, it's Ryan from Dinosaur Comics. And, oh, hey, you're David from the forum. And, oh, hey, I read your comic. It's cool. And, you know, these things just sort of build gradually, you know, brick by brick. And, yeah, it's like it's like making making a friendship, you know. You meet somebody, then you see him again at another thing, and then you then you run into them in the third venue, and then eventually you become familiar with them. And, and you talk about the dig and, like, how do you make them stick? Well, they stick when they see you the second time or the third time or the fourth time because now they recognize you. And it so, used to be about how do you get them to come. I mean, that was RSS's great ability was – I mean, a lot of people do big uh, – even a few years ago, and I still knew people who do this, they come in in the morning and they hit a button or they do something right, and they open up opens 43. Opens up tabs or whatever. Yeah, and you're like, how do you – oh, it makes me crazy. But, um, you know, there's there were email lists and there was RSS, but there was – it was hard to get a sticky relationship with someone. I mean, that's where – Facebook, for all of its flaws, the idea that you can follow a page on Facebook or follow yeah. somebody or share, you know, and Tumblr is the thing. same way too. I think. Yeah, that's t- right. And Tumblr started was 2005, 2006 era. So, and that became and that and other Tumble like blogs, sort of link blogs, helped with that as well. Because it was how do you get that mimetic yeah. acceleration where everybody suddenly knows about what you're doing because there's a reference somewhere that is really compelling. And so you got through the, the dark days of the internet, the dark days before Tumblr. I had Jonathan Colton on the show some months ago and we were talking about how he started before, you know, 2005, he started posting music and it was like, it, it seems so ridiculously primitive. And that was eight years ago. It's not like it was 20 years ago about, you know, reaching audiences, doing e-commerce, getting MP3 files into some kind of playing device. Yeah, you have to somehow email somebody a file that they have to like dub onto a tape with a headphone jack or something, you know, then play it in their car on <laughs> a whatever. Yeah, but you were doing this I mean, your strip launched years before there were really good web browsers on mobile devices. And so you built this all up, essentially a desktop audience that was spreading links, uh, I was saying vernacularly, like people would spread them word of mouth, person to person on these forums and other places. But you built up by the, I mean, by the time the internet became very social from 2003 to, you know, like the late to, you know, Audis, uh, it seemed like you built up a pretty huge audience on a gradual growing, growing, growing basis. Well, I'm real. I mean, I'm pleased. I really, really am flattered and honored that people like what I do. I mean, that's that's all you want, right? That you you want people to pay attention to the thing that you're doing, and then to say like, I like it. Let me give me some more mm-hmm. of this. Like that's that's the ultimate, you know, compliment. And so the fact that people do pay attention, I think, is is really great. And that's you know, an audience that I have tried either consciously or unconsciously to cultivate just by virtue of the fact that I do the things I think are interesting. And I think that's all, I think that's also kind of all you can ask of an artist. And so the people who are interested in what I am doing are probably going to be interested in the things I find interesting in general. And I, I, I say that to say that it's, 
I feel pretty confident that the things that I do of any nature, whether it's a book or it's a project that is not related to comics or whatever, the people who follow me are are hopefully going to be into all of it. And that's that's the thing that I want to do with my my work in a broad sense is to have the people to to select the audience that wants this stuff rather than oh, to try and do something yeah. that panders really broadly to people of a you know this huge swath of I don't know let's say video games I'm I'm I, I like video games fine but I'm not what you would call a super super hardcore gamer and so the more jokes I make about that kind of stuff there may be people who find that interesting but it's not coming from an authentic place and so it's not going to be something that I'm going to have a good po- you know like a unique point of view on and it's not something that like that audience who's into just that is not going to be interested in the other things I do so i think it's important to 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 take the time and and to deliberately sort of calibrate the things i do to my own personal sense of what's interesting and hopefully the people that are attracted to it are those people that are sort of you know going to be there for me and my thing in particular. Well, you seem to have succeeded in in having that. I mean, you want to say it's an auteur's, you went to film school, an auteur's <laughs> vision. is that? But I think this is what the, the most or all the people I've had on the show in, in the whole, I don't know if I have a message with this podcast, but the whole thing is that it's okay to be an auteur. It's okay to have a distinct worldview that you like because the internet is so huge right. that if you're, if you're competent, or you figure out an area of competency and, or, or excellency, let's say not just competency. Cause some people, there's this dispute about, well, not everyone can do this. It's like, this is true. Not everyone has the entrepreneurial drive, uh-huh. the ability to self market as they need to, the, the, you know, the wherewithal to, to support themselves while they ramp up or, or not everyone is good at what they think they want to do in life. And that's absolutely true. But if you, have found the right niche and you have a story to tell, I think it's okay as you do that <laughs> you can have your own idiosyncratic vision. And so many people on the internet, I mean, you get a ton of support, but so many people seem to have the idea that it's okay to tell other people who are expressing a unique point of view that what they're doing isn't, uh, it shouldn't be expressed. And it's not like, you know, I don't believe in gay marriage or I believe in gay marriage, not the political issue, but more like a, I'm on a podcast called The Incomparable about geeky things. And we sometimes get complaints like, you know, that, uh, that you shouldn't have done that episode. It's like, well, we are not <laughs> tying you down. We know you like the show so much you want to listen to every episode. That is a complete compliment. But we are not tying you down and putting the earphones over you. There's the idea that you can walk away from things you don't like. And I think there is... Some people have a, an issue with being able to walk away from it, but clearly you've got an audience that is, you know, has walked to you. And I think it's okay to create a vision and express that and uh, clearly do it well and then have an audience that discovers you, that finds you, and then you stick to that and you don't have to apologize for having a distinct vision. Well, I, I mean, I, I'll take that one step further. Um, mm. I mean, there are a couple sort of guiding principles that, you know, I, I try and keep in mind. And, and, one is the idea that you don't have to be the best at something or like um like for example if i was doing just a regular comic strip that i drew like anybody else i i'm maybe the millionth best cartoonist in the world like maybe mm. the 10 millionth right but maybe i can be the best at the thing that i invented and uh and and this is not to say that i invented the art of even like the very specific drill down like victorian collage like art because obviously you know uh, that's been around since uh, since Max Ernst, and there are other people who have d- even done it as comics before and since. But 
you know, maybe, maybe if the pool is for people doing that, maybe I can be the best of those <laughs> rather than everyone who's ever picked up a pencil to do a comic strip. So I, and I think that the experiences that we have, you know, uniquely inform our point of view, just sort of philosophically, but also inform our, our skill set mm. in, in a very practical sense. And so, for example, I don't do much with video these days because it's just time consuming, but I have a skill set for it because that's been honed in a professional manner. And so when I go to do a Kickstarter for a card game, I know how to make a video that's really, really interesting and compelling. And, you know, or I like, I, I like to think, you know, that, that, uh, that's the case anyhow. And so I think finding the combinations of things like where your individual skill sets intersect can sort of drill down to find a unique oh. confluence of those things that, that maybe is your specialty as an individual. That's wonderful because, and that's the, I mean, that's that whole issue of the internet being such a huge audience and it being, you know, you being in equidistant from anybody else on the internet in terms of them finding you. So we always talk about how many niche, uh, niches there are, niches there are. And it's, if you have, uh, even if you, the, the confluence of all those interests only means there's a million people in the world who might be interested. If 10,000 of them find you, that could be your career. Yeah, that's, that's enough. And, and I think, I mean, I, I, maybe this is common, but, oh, I see stuff on YouTube or whatever, you know, someone that has just some really, Clever, fun, singular idea. And I'll think of something like, uh, like bad lip reading. Have you seen those YouTube videos? <laughs> yes. They're so funny. And it's, it's a, it's just one basic idea. And then they do it really, really well. And it's super funny. And I hope they're su- super successful. I'm not sure, but it's the sort of thing that, Oh man, if I had thought of that or what's, what's the thing that, that uh, I could have done that's like that? Well, no, you know, maybe I didn't have. You know, whatever my my life didn't conspire to give me that idea because of it, maybe that's not exactly the thing I would be best at. But maybe someone else is seeing what I'm doing and they're like, oh, why didn't I think of that? But I'm the one who thought of it because this is where my life has led me to. And I think I think the people who I mean, I think you're right. I mean, to be frank, you're right that not everybody has the same entrepreneurial sense and not everybody has sort of the the weird uh, uh, combination of of luck and persistence and, you know, sort of marketability, you know, whatever those weird things that, that, that have to combine in order for you to be, you know, uh, successful on the internet. Like there are things that there are people who are not as suited for those skills, but there are others that, um, they are suited really well for a thing that they haven't figured out yet. And I think those are the people that are poised to do really great things if they can just, Keep working and keep developing new skills until eventually, like the, like in a lock, like the last tumbler clicks. And I think if that <laughs> hasn't happened, it just means that you haven't got the key far enough in. You haven't done enough things. You haven't broadened your base of experience yet. And, and this is, you know, when people talk about taking crappy jobs or whatever, well, I really want to be a poet, you know, but I'm, I'm instead I'm, Singing coffee. It's like, well, you're being paid to learn something. You're being paid to learn a skill. Mm. And then if you can use that skill, even if not the coffee pouring, but the idea of customer service or something, you know, hopefully that's something that's going to be helpful for you. And, uh, you know, that's a very dad sort of thing to say. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's true, but, 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 I mean, look, just, just looking back at my life, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be doing the things I, I am doing if I hadn't done all these other seemingly disconnected things first. And I think everyone has, has their own, you know, path that's going to lead them to a slightly different place uh, that is appropriate for, for them and reflects their experiences. 
I, I, but I think part of what I think part of what you're saying too is that, well, part of what your what your journey through life has been, and I think this is what other people may need to realize is you didn't start day one with Wondermark. I mean, okay, so there are some people like this. There are Picassos in the world who, as a child, could paint better than the great masters, right? There are geniuses, and it's a very small number of people, and they ruin it for the rest of us because <laughs> right. you curious. assume, yeah, you have to be precocious and a, and a, you know, whatever. But for most of us, we start with some set of skills, and if we're lucky, we are able to make them deeper and deeper. In certain areas. And now, uh, I think as you point out, and as your career shows, you can have a lot of different sorts of skills that now play together in a way that before you really would have had to choose a path or you would never sure. maybe be able to make a living you know, at what you wanted to do. So the thing I think about is that it's the maturity. You started with Wondermark with kind of this idea and you refined and refined and refined. The difference between you and someone else doing a Victorian themes collaged cartoon is that partly the stick-to-itiveness. If someone else did it, and they also did it for year after year after year at the same level and distinction, they would reach that same level of refinement too, potentially, or they would have given up because maybe no audience would have found them. Or, or they would take it in a direction that's uniquely their own too. Yeah, exactly, right. Because you're, you're stripped now. I mean, look at, this is actually a good example, is Tom Tomorrow, Dan Perkins, who does uh-huh. uh, This Modern Life. He's He started very deeply as a more collagist and kind of this, you know, taking 60s advertising stuff, recombining it as a political message. And over time, you look at his stuff from 20 years ago and today, and it's remarkably different in terms of style. He evolved into something as he refined it and did more cartooning and less collage. But um, it's incredibly idiosyncratic. And you would never, I think, have looked at what he did 20 years ago and necessarily predict what it had become. Or, or even Scott Adams, who was never a good artist, but he was good enough. And you look at his early stuff, and it's terrible, right. but sort of very funny and very arch. And now the art is actually refined to a point that everything he does is iconic. So yep. there's something about how even using art created by other people like yourself in your strip, that by the combination of it, the utility of it, the selection and so forth, you've refined that so that you have a, a style that is absolutely unique and distinct and people would be able to tell anyone else doing the same thing was not you. I'm going to put that on a plaque. I'm just going to put that on my wall so I can look <laughs> at it every day. Um, but I, you know, I, I want to say one other thing too, and, and you know, on the, and I thank you for the compliment. And I do think that being distinctive is is helpful in this age of Tumblr and everything, where things can get kind of lost or sort of assumed to be born from the internet. And you know, having a, having a style that's that, that's, the, that's distinct the, is uh, the autochthonous, you know, cartoons that have no origin or they just appear everywhere. They just who knows where they came from? They they, bu- they bubbled up from a gas vent, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> and. Cool. Um, and any attempts to find the author of them, frankly, is is impugning my uh, <laughs> uh, taste as a as a curator of this. I am a great this, defender of cartoonists, by the way, uh, as a non-cartoonist, supernatural uh, fan fiction photo blog. You know, I have my own integrity as well. So I've spent a lot of effort and time shaming people into identifying <laughs> cartoonists. Well, you're you're doing the Lord's work. That's a good fight, um, right? But so. the other thing I wanted to mention is you talked about like uh, to, to go back briefly to the idea of cultivating an audience. I mean, everyone can do the thing that they want to do. Like, there's that, that's the great thing about it. And people can be interested in what you're doing or not. But one sort of arch maxim that I have found to be helpful is that if you make a thing that nice people like, then nice people come to it. And if you make a thing that jerks like, then jerks <laughs> come to it. And so 
I have I I know people who oh are like God. all of my great. fans are just complete like just raging jerks and I'm like well your comic is for jerks it's like really cynical and it's really like mean spirited oh and, it, and it's it's, it's wow. the thing that jerks are attracted to and then you look at somebody like Dave Kellett for example I don't know if you know him or Ryan yeah. North or or these people who are just like unfailingly like charming and positive in in real life and their comics have this sort of infectious like enthusiasm for life and just real happy uh spirit behind them and the people who are fans of those strips are just the the nicest people in the world and they recommend it to their friends and they come out and they buy books and they shake your hand at a convention and they are your biggest supporters because they're you know they're finding something that they want to support and those i mean again you do what you want but for my money i rather have the nice people be my fans than the jerks. And so I'm going to try and do something that, you know, I'm just, that's one of the things that I want to, to try and do just in a little way, just to, just to, just to put a shim on that wheel to guide it in that direction <laughs> to, to, to steer it toward the sort of thing that sort of nice people are going to like. And, you know, and that means that sometimes I don't do a strip about, the way I feel, which is just a dark cloud over my head. It's like nobody, mm. nobody comes to comics. Nobody comes to my comic. I've, I've made the point that people, to tell people that this is not the comic, that hopefully that's going to depress you. And maybe sometimes it's darker or more cynical, oh. but it's not, you know, people, people come to comics specifically for an escape usually or to laugh or to have an interesting point of view foisted upon the world. And nobody wants to, just like people don't want to read someone else's diary, you know, they don't want to hear you whine. So find another venue for that. <laughs> I had a difficult marital moment at Christmas. Now I'm Jewish. That's not the difficult moment. And uh, <laughs> my wife's family is Quaker now. So it's a very complicated thing. But it, well, my wife got me this wonderful collection of Chris Ware. And uh, I got it from her. And I actually, we have a very honest, open relationship. And I said, this is an incredibly thoughtful gift. You really understand me. She's not a comics person. Mm -hmm. It was that big collection. I said, you know what, though? Chris Ware, he actually, I think he's a brilliant artist and a brilliant writer, and he depresses me so much I decided <laughs> I couldn't read him anymore because his sadness is so yeah. eloquent that it actually makes my life worse, and it's not a disrespect to him as an artist, but I can't do it. Yeah. And she understood and accepted that was not upset, and it's still upset. I said, what if I, it was too late to get a return? It's like a 50-pound <laughs> box, so it's still sitting unopened because oh, I want wow. to either – I'll, I'll – Sell oh, it to wow. someone, whatever, but it was, it wasn't a gift of the Magi thing. But I hear what you're saying there because there is that, like, I don't select that only happy go lucky cartoonist no, or of art or whatever. Not. Of but not. God, he just sticks a knife in your heart in the most, yeah. in the most beautiful way. And there's only so much I can have a knife stuck in my heart and, right. and walk away from it. So yeah. And, and again, and, and I agree with you. Like, no, nothing against that. And sometimes you want that. And sometimes it's, it's beautiful and poetic. But um, <laughs> a giant collection of his, I would probably have to yeah. move into a, a basement someplace <laughs> and cry. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's actually a beautiful transition here, too, because as we're talking about this sort of stage of your career, as we get toward, as we get closer to the future and some exciting things that are happening, like right now as we're recording, uh, um, I interviewed Holly Rowland from Topodico before uh, an earlier episode. And Topodico, you were talking about this kind of finding the right sort of audience, the audience coming to you and, and you exercising this vision. But there's that transition between having a, a day job that pays the bills and doing a, any kind of thing you're doing, a comic or something else, in which you get a bigger and bigger audience and actually being able to make a living from it. And you made that transition, was that back in 2009? So quite a while yeah, ago. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a long time coming. I was working... Uh, 
the trailer company I was working for, I was a staff editor and I was there from 2002 until 2005, I believe. And then I went freelance and I started working for different places. And as a freelancer, I had a little bit more of a flexible schedule. So I was able to take some time off to, like I made a movie around then and uh, a short film that it does not seem very, like ambitious to be like i made a short film because like nowadays people make that like on their phone in their garage <laughs> but um you know it was kind of a, it was a pretty big undertaking at the time but it was something i spent a lot of time doing and um i also started to get more interested in this idea of going to comic book conventions and or just you know uh, meeting some of these other web cartoonists and, and and people who are in this industry and uh so as i mentioned i was on the dinosaur comics message board and some of the fans uh, there also did comics and, uh, we sort of got, got to be buddies. And, um, one of them is Chris Yates, who, uh, does a lot of, he's actually a puzzle maker. Oh. He does a lot of sculptures. I don't know if you've run into his work, but he's done stuff for Rich Stevens and for, for lots oh, of yeah. people before. He makes these really beautiful handmade wooden j- jigsaw puzzles. And he and I were, were friends and he lived in Boulder. We had this idea that we would go and road trip out to New York for a convention out there called MOCA, the Museum of Comic and Cartoon Art. They have an annual art festival. And so this was in 2006, so I took a couple couple weeks off. Uh, hilariously enough, it was the week before I was supposed to get married. So my <laughs> wife was like, she was, I don't know, she was, I'm not quite sure if she let me go or if she sort of watched me go. But uh, <laughs> um, uh it was really amazing. It was the first time I had been to a convention as a, like I had a table and I had some books that I had printed up and I made some stickers and I had a couple t-shirts and I was just trying to figure out this thing of like, do people want my work? And um, the strip was running in the onion at the time and which also came about purely by, I'm not going to say chance, but I, I will say a little naivete where mm-hmm. I noticed that I, they had the red meat comics in the onion for time immemorial. And uh, so I sent them a press kit. And I was just like, here's a comic that I made. Would you, you know, then here's a bunch of, tried to make it look cool and formal. I was like, here's some samples. And I don't know if you have submissions, but here's some comics. And then nothing, of course. And then something. Like I got an email from Tasha Robinson over at the AV Club. And she's like, we're going to start running comics in the paper. And ever since you sent that unsolicited press kit, I've been reading it. Oh, my <laughs> and gosh. And would you like to be in the paper? Like, what's your rate? And I was like, uh, 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 <laughs> yeah, uh you, <laughs> of course. Well, yes, let me uh, consult with my whatever. <laughs> and um, so that was really great. And the strip started running in the in the print edition of The Onion. It was in 10 cities, I believe, at its height. And New York was one of them. And so people came out to the show and they recognized the strip from The Onion. So these things sort of wove together and it was a combination You're of – You're such a perfect fit for them though too yeah. though because it's that kind of like nice – it's not it's arch but not unpleasant. It's like it's uh, – <laughs> we were talking about early cognitive dissonance. It's that it's – there's a tension. It's not nasty or, or you know, or bitter or, or ugly. Yeah. And, and, and that's – I try something – I try to stay away from those emotions specifically. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it was – this combination of just sort of being bold and taking risks and being naive, which I think is like a supremely undervalued emotion. Like, like you, I think the, the, the things I've done that have been the most meaningful are things that I didn't know how to do and didn't know were impossible. And so I did them anyway. And, uh, like you just like, what's the protocol to like send an unsolicited press kit to the onion. And, and, you know, and you look at someone who does that kind of thing. People send me unsolicited stuff all the time. And I'm like, what do you think you're going to get out of this? Like, it's silly to do that. <laughs> but every now and then it does work. 
So not to encourage it. Don't send me anything. That's and- right. That's right. But it is, no, it is, a great, it is that there's a difference between uh, naivete and like being a pest, right? There's that. Like, yeah, I, sometimes I, I, it's I the think, right time and the right yeah. thing, but other times you're bugging people. And you know, right? right. If you got a thousand submissions, you can't do anything with it. But you got one good one, you might be able to put it in the right person's ear. Yeah. So who knows? Like these yeah. these these things are so you know driven by luck as well as, well, as much as anything, which I, I'm completely you know I admit entirely. But um, so I went to this convention and people bought stuff, people bought books, and it, and it just started to feel like maybe something, maybe I could do something here. And so I think between 2006 and 2009, uh, between traveling to conventions and then starting to develop more merchandise, and I partnered with Topodico to do the shirts. I'd met Jeff at that convention, uh, Jeff, uh, Holly's husband, and these things just sort of grew gradually. And well, yeah, I, should, I should explain. So Jeff and Holly, they, uh, Topatico, Jeff, Jeff's a cartoonist, and yeah. he uh, was started to fulfill stuff for other friends. He got fired from a job, started to fulfill, do the shipping stuff for other friends who are web comics artists, yep. and then realized, oh, wait, if I consolidate all this and do this right. thing, and, and they've been going strong for yeah, s- almost and, six years now. And that that was a masterstroke I, uh, you know, on Jeff's part, was the idea. And it was a labor-saving move on his part, because he didn't want to deal with all these different... <laughs> the way it used to work was someone like Ryan or, or other, another cartoonist that was one of Jeff's clients. They're typically Canadians or people from outside the U.S. who couldn't ship stuff to American fans. Oh, yeah. Jeff would be like, I'll charge you a couple bucks. You keep a store and then send me a spreadsheet of what to ship. And then it's like this completely just messy process. And he's like, screw it. It's too hard. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set up the store and then I'll pay you when they sell. And it was the brilliant move because now you have a consolidated store where people come from one comic and then they, oh, I save five bucks if I get three shirts. Let me browse and see what else they have. And so you have this cross-promotion effect that's hugely, hugely powerful. It's also – it's not a co-op, but it's really – he's an artist. I mean Holly, Holly and he and now the staff there, they fully – I mean they have a – come at it from the artist standpoint. Yeah. So they're not trying to ream anybody. It's not – there's so much in – so many of the podcasts I've done and so many people I've talked to, there's this – the reason a lot of this stuff works is that at all the points at which you need help or there's an intersection, there are other people who've maybe gotten there before you or maybe in some cases you're Jeff and you started it, but <laughs> yeah. that you're in a let's take a smaller percentage of possible of the sales to make this work for everybody mm-hmm. as opposed to we're the gatekeeper and we want 80%. Right, yeah. So you see this that's, like even like an Etsy, so. even Etsy at a billion dollars in sales a year or whatever they're at now, Etsy takes, I forget what it is, a few percentage points where eBay was always higher. You know, So there's this right. idea like that Topatico is – it's a fulfillment house, but it's not some big faceless corporation. It's this – this small company that really understands and is part of what you guys, what everyone else, all the participants like you do. Yeah. But, and, and you're working for them now. I should point out, you're working for them as well. Well, yeah. Or are I, you still? I forget. I know I am. And, and that's kind of the next phase of this because um, – mm. so this period of, of 2006 to about 2009 was when I was working more and more on comics and less and less taking jobs. And it was a sort of thing where – I would work for nine months out of the year and then have a couple months off or whatever. I'd take some time off. And then the the following year, over the course of the 12 months, I would maybe work six of those. And then the rest of the time I would be doing comics. And then I was in a very, very tremendously lucky position where I would go to a convention or have some big project I was working on and then, you know, in the comics world. And then that would wrap up and then my phone would ring and it would be a you know, a job for a month to come fill in for a trailer editor on vacation. Oh, and I would go do that for a month. And so the way it timed out was just extraordinarily uh, fortunate. And then 
eventually I just started taking fewer and fewer of those jobs as I got more and more busy with the comics. And then, um, so in, by 2008, I think I worked two or three months out of the year doing, um, uh, trailer work and the rest of it, I was just sort of, oh, that's beautiful. So you didn't have to say like, I'm quitting this freelance job and we'll never do it again. Suddenly you were able to do this great slow transition. Yeah. It was a, it that's was a pretty nice. gradual transition. I mean, there, there, there definitely was a, a point and it came in 2009 when I, uh, I visited the web comics weekend, which was, uh, and then <laughs> it was, I had the biggest senioritis of my life. It was just Congratulations, like, you're, you're unemployable. I don't care. That's it. I am. I'm entirely unemployable, 100% un- unemployable. And so I called up Holly <laughs> and I said, look, I want to not have to do this trailer thing anymore. And in order to do that, I need to, like, there are just these sort of things that I have to do in terms to make it viable. And then I was doing fine with T-shirt sales and that sort of thing, but you always, it's so scary. You feel like that's going to drop out at any second. And then I was just like, I feel like there's some things I can help you with. I, and um, just in terms of like, you know, so it's not you and Jeff just sort of killing yourselves. And, and yeah. coming from a marketing background, I think, helped a little bit. Not that I am the best marketer because I feel like I chafe a little bit at it, but I do feel like I understand the vernacular of it and I understand just how to be – you know, just how to present something in a professional and, and understandable way that, I mean, I, I think Jeff, for all of his, his strengths, is a little bit like, he's, he's not just sort of neutral on that, he's mm-hmm. anti that. And so I think that a little balance is helpful when it comes time to send out a press release or to write copy for the website or something. You want someone that can, um, just to have another perspective when needed. And so Holly and Jeff thought it was a good idea, and I, and I kind of started to work for them. And my duties have ranged uh, from specifically marketing-related things, such as writing copy for websites and running ad campaigns, to more recently – I found that I'm actually not very good at that, it turns out – to more recently, I just head up the book productions side of it. So Topodico mm-hmm. publishes somewhere on the order of 12 books a year for its client cartoonists, and so – I am the person that does the print buying and makes sure the files are formatted right and helps communicate with all the reps at the printing companies and organizes all the, if we need to hire designers to lay stuff out and, you know, make sure all the ISBNs are registered. So just sort of the, the nuts and bolts sort of production management and art direction of the book line is sort of where I've fallen into. And then with Make That Thing, which is, of course, the new arm for crowdsourcing, the Machine of Death project, which was earlier this uh, this year, was my sort of you know head first dive into that world, and it turned out so amazingly beyond expectation, and, and I learned so much from doing it that uh, I've been happy now to help them with their other projects, like uh, there's a couple other book projects and, and different things that make that thing has been involved in. So I've sort of been the one of the people involved in helping that stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, we should just go forward. Make that thing. So that's, I don't think they've launched into full sort of open. I mean, it's a, a back end for web comics, people who want to do crowdfunded projects where before you'd have to invent the wheel every time or conceivably you could work with Topodico, but you'd start doing it yourself and then, you know, hand it off to them. And we're seeing in the Kickstarter crowdfunding ecosystem, there's a lot of companies rising up to help 
yeah. artists and other kinds of producers. I've talked to people working on the product design and manufacturing and post Kickstarter distribution. And this is yeah. um, make that thing is sort of soup to nuts, like help plan, budget, run, fulfill, print. Yeah, there's, whatever. there's I feel like the, yeah, there are starting to become a lot of like secondary, like, like marketing, like service organizations that have arisen. But I think make that thing is among the only ones that, as you say, like, it's not a matter of like we'll receive your pallets and ship them to your backers. It's like no, we're going to help you like structure this thing. And not to say that there are people, there aren't people who are very good and about this in uh, on their own. But we are now, you know, with every campaign that we run, we have a little bit more experience, and uh, we can be a sounding board for an artist who otherwise would have to go it alone and and figure out like. Here's our print quotes. Like, let me get, mm-hmm. let me figure out how much this book costs, and you don't have to worry about where it's going to ship because it'll come to our warehouse. And you, oh, it, you know, all the all those things that people don't always realize. But just all those details that drive people crazy. And I mean, ever you know, people have done it, but there, it's 2013. A lot of this stuff is well understood, and Topatico and other companies know how to do the things. You don't have to invent it as an artist or a creator. You don't have to come up with and build your own spreadsheets and fulfillment system. And God, have right. I talked to so many people who have gone through crowdfunding campaigns who didn't think the hardest part would actually be getting the product in, making sure it was good, packing right. it, and getting it out to everybody. That's It's a horrible – even when you're doing T-shirts. I, I was a 99% invisible uh, contributor. I love the podcast. And I think it took them months longer, like every, like – 90% of things go well, and that 10%, you get 90% of that, and then there's 10% left, and finally you've got the three shirts that have to go to Zimbabwe and be hand-delivered by a courier, right. and you forget that that's – you don't know that's going to be part of right. that psychic toll while you're actually trying to do the work that's been funded. And that that's going to cost you $200 more than you thought oh, because yes. you have to pay for the guard on the Jeep and the whole deal. Ah, yeah, exactly. Uh, not too many of those, but speaking of Zimbabwe and death, but the, you, you just mentioned a moment ago, uh, machine of death. And I mean, this is kind of, this, this is the hook for this podcast. I've gone out at the, um, the long way around because I think this is the lead up is all the different skills you've acquired, your trailer making, um, in fact, firearms expertise, sure. printing books, building audiences, the cartooning. Machine of Death is a fascinating project, and the first part of it, the first edition or, or came out in 2010. You have a second collection in 2013. I remember three years ago being fascinated and impressed by by that. This is a very different thing than you've done before, but it does rely on all these principles and technologies and, and things you've understood. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of this, this sort of hilarious and awesome project. Sure. Well, Machine of Death came about – uh, I and mean, this was another thing that was born out of, quite frankly, the Dinosaur Comics message board. <laughs> That's awesome. And so, uh, Dinosaur <laughs> Comics, and, and to go back to what you've mentioned a, a little while ago, the idea of like constrained art, you know, no conversation about that is complete without mentioning Dinosaur Comics. Ryan North, uh, does a comic strip and he's been doing it about as long as I have, a little bit longer actually. And, uh, or maybe I think he started the month after me, but he was more popular than I was early on. So, you know, we're, 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 I guess we've never discussed that. However, um, I was about to say we have a rivalry, but it turns out we don't because we're, we're, we're good friends. Um, but he does a, does a thing in his comic where he can, he'll have an idea for a story, and rather than write the story, he just has his main character explain the premise to the story and how oh, awesome it is. Great. And uh, his main character is T-Rex, a big green dinosaur. And T-Rex in this particular episode explained the idea of the, for this cool story, which there's a machine that can tell how you're going to die with just a – all it takes is a blood sample and then it tells you 
uh, prints a little card, and there's just a few words on it, and it, it doesn't tell you where or, or, or when. It only tells you how. And it's always the same no matter how many times you get tested, and it, it's always correct in some way. And and it's tricky because old age might mean you die of old age or it might mean an old man shoots you, <laughs> and you just don't know what it means. And um, and And basically – Goddamn irony. Um, I, I think the other example in the comic was natural causes meant um, you're killed by a falling koala bear. <laughs> and so it's it's like it was such an interesting – it was a throwaway just kind of like one comic strip. And then on the message board, everyone was like, Ryan, this is incredible. Like what – like how could this uh, – uh, you know, what if this thing was in like the military? Like, oh, what would this mean for medicine? Or like, what would kids be tested? And like, everyone started coming up with these really, really cool ideas. And so, the it's in, I, future, it's in Futurama. Actually, there's something like it. The professor invents. It's not anywhere near that neat. You stick your finger into something, and it tells you exact date and time of your death. Yeah. So I mean, this is a storytelling trope, as, as you know, as as old as the Greeks, like Omega Man and all sure. those. But, right. But no. But I have never. There's never in that the the ironic twist, like a fortune telling machine combined with the right. thing and, that tells you when you're going to die. That is the that's the twist. And, and and the cool thing is, like a lot of times, you you, you from like there's a Heinlein story. Like this thing has been, mm-hmm. you know, there have been lots of examples of this. But I think most of them will tell you when. So of a countdown kind of thing. Right, Ours exactly. does not tell you when. It only tells you how. <laughs> oh and, and, and that kind of so makes horrible. for some very interesting situations in the book. But to get to the book, what we had to do first was um, everyone has had all these really great ideas and so we decided that um, we would put together a book collection and um, we actually had an open submission policy where it, writers from all over the world could write stories and submit them for inclusion in the book. And then we were, I think we received about 700 stories. Mm. Uh, it was me and Ryan and uh, our, our friend Matt, who was also on the message board, who was a writer and was also interested in sort of the task of editing. And uh, so the three of us looked over the stories, and we eventually winnowed it down to uh, 30 that we really liked, and we had four of our own. And then we had this great idea that we would just – it's like it's so compelling, right? And uh, we would shop it to publishers. And so mm-hmm. we just started that process. And it's a difficult process, as, as I'm sure many people know. And more so, in fact, because this was like 2007, eight, when things were not, you know, like not all the tools were in place that, that maybe are now for getting your work out there. And we had publishers who were interested and we had agents who liked it and people liked the book and yet nobody wanted to publish it because like, who are we? We're just a bunch of, you know, we're, we're not famous authors and it's a, a short story anthology, which is like not very marketable. And so we got nowhere. And eventually, by the time we had like, like gone down every rabbit trail we could, we were just like, I guess there's only one option remaining, and that's to self-publish it. <laughs> yes. And it, I mean, in the interim, we had sort of like it had taken us a couple years, 2007 to 2010. In the interim, I had had three books published by Dark Horse. Ryan had had a book published by another small press. We had sort of seen how. The publishing industry kind of does and doesn't work in different ways. We had seen people self-publish and do you know well or poorly, and so we felt like we had a, a growing understanding of the landscape of self-publishing, and so we decided to do that. And we had commissioned illustrations from our friends in web comics and a lot of really great artists. And uh, so we had this really cool book full of stories and full of illustrations. Oh, and this was, I should point out, this is just before Kickstarter really, because uh, Kickstarter launched in 2009, sort of late 2009. This was, uh, yeah, Kickstarter was not really on the horizon. I mean, I, I think we had maybe heard of it, and it was very, 
very marginal still at that yeah, point. Yeah, people were raising a few thousand dollars here, maybe ten, fifteen thousand right. dollars, but it was really just ramping up. Yeah, and this whole idea of Kickstarter where you go over your goal is like that was still in the future. That was That's still right. that was so far in the future. But we just had this we had nothing to lose with this campaign, so we decided again people had now been waiting. Some people had been waiting for this book this whole time, other people were new to it. And we decided we were just gonna try this gambling kind of campaign where we said Anyone who wants this book, let's try and buy it on Amazon all on the same day. And that way, we concentrate all possible sales into the narrowest amount of time, and hopefully that will drive us up the bestseller chart. And you were doing direct fulfillment. So you were uh, Amazon, I forget the program they have. So you were going to, uh, you ship boxes to them and they ship them out? No, this, the originally was, uh, it's no longer, but at the beginning it was print on demand. Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So Amazon would just, I mean, I think it cost us a few dollars to set up the title, but then they would have to print all the books that we sold, which is oh, great that's even for better. us. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you better. had no idea how many were going to be printed. Right. You didn't and, have to do the inventory. And then with, and yeah, we didn't have to – I mean we had invested our personal money in buying it, all the stories and all the illustrations and the cover art and everything. Oh, I should point out, you paid for the stories. This isn't one of those, hey, it's, oh, yeah, it's free things. You paid every I mean, the stories, we you paid for the illustrations. Yeah, we didn't pay much, but we paid what we could and we paid I think what was a, a – you know, low to marginal, you know, like a, a market rate for an independent book. You know, we wanted to be as fair as we could given that we were investing our personal money yes. and then – but the advantage with the, with the print on demand was, yeah, we didn't have to print inventory. And then, luckily for us, of course, when it did well, that there was, it was never out of stock, which would have been a problem because then people couldn't buy it. But um, <laughs> so what happened was, we did really well, and we had sort of built this campaign around the notion of this underdog story, and like the publisher didn't want it, but like we believe in it, and. I think the like the catchphrase was like we want to prove that internet people can make things happen and and I we really believed and and still do that you know there are people out there who read web comics or sort of are or are in that same sort of like internet space that is is reachable outside of the traditional marketing venues from the publishers and that they're amenable to a personal conversation from creators to say like look this is a thing that we really believe in if you like the thing that we did before, you'll like, you know, just trust us, you'll like this one. Also, you can kind of help us prove a point. Also, you can read a, read a, read a big sample and see if you are interested in the idea. And all these things sort of work together to our advantage. And we, uh, we became the number one book on Amazon. That is crazy. Let's pause for a second and have a moment of silence for that <laughs> wonderful thing. Because I remember this time, because I was doing a lot more uh, – I was reporting on, on crowdfunding, which this was, and I realized this was a, a pre-order situation. But I was pretty focused on this area. And I remember hearing this and thinking, I know who David Malky is. I know this comic strip. <laughs> I know, you know, dinosaur. I know all these things. But I'm like, really? Number one on Amazon? And yeah. So – but the, there's always that thing. Um, my dad and I run this – Thing that we've been running for years. It's called Books and Writers, and it's an Amazon rank tracking service that I set up years ago. He does uh -huh. the customer service on. We have a tiny number of subscribers now, but we started it back when it was hard to track that number as an author. Now Amazon offers you tools and so forth. Sure. But so I have we have this bizarrely intricate sort of um, uh, blind people feeling the shape of the animal kind of sense about Amazon ranking uh -huh. and and. There's all these factors. Like Barnes & Noble, they have this very interesting thing. It's the absolute rank of the book ever sold in any of their systems. Mm -hmm. So it's like you look at Barnes & Noble, you're like, well, that's the 215th 
pop, most popular book or most sold book ever in the history of Barnes Noble. And Amazon, as you well know, obviously, I'm, exp- I'm giving you the exposition for the benefit of listeners. <laughs> the, uh, is there's acceleration. There's sort of raw copies. There's uh, a few other factors like the they look at sales over a short period of time, like I think even an hour over mm-hmm. maybe a week over a longer period of time, and then relative to other books. So to get to number one, it's an incredible feat. But you stacked it exactly right with the pre-orders that a huge number of orders at one point when there's no other like blockbuster book coming through and all the top books are just sort of this generic mix of books that always sell well is is a totally wonderful perfect coincident point to be able to achieve that and and we had no idea that there were like we didn't know what books were coming out like we kind of right you couldn't we, ha- possibly right yeah and and uh, we also I had heard about this author, Scott Sigler, attempting something different or, mm-hmm. or excuse me, something similar with his book in the past, and that he was reading an article, uh, an interview with him was what gave me the idea that oh. it was this sales over time sort of ratio. Yeah. And I think he only made it to number seven or something like that. But I so I had this vague idea that maybe it's possible and and it turned out that I mean, you're right. It was this 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 great confluence of factors of which the concept was one, and the goodwill we had in the audience was another, and then the sort of cool help us in our David and Goliath campaign was, was yet another. And the print on demand thing probably helped because Amazon may have accounted for your orders. The pre orders hit all at the same second in their system potentially. So it went live. All the pre orders were boom fulfilled because they went to the POD system, and then you know because I think I think you could become a number one bestseller on Amazon. If you sold 2,000 books in the space of a minute, that probably would put you in number one. <laughs> and some books do sell that on a, you know, new books that are hardcover bestsellers. Well, yeah. And in, in our case, we had had, I think the book was available like the week before, but we told people don't buy it mm. until the day of. Oh, like when, oh. like when, when it's the 26th of October, that's the day. And we had told people in advance, like, count on that being the day that you buy it for this reason. Oh, so it wasn't pre-orders. You had, you had everyone, it was sort of a cluster. We like told people to like, let, yeah, like hold off, like our arms oh, are out, okay. like restraining the crowd. <laughs> and I had written to some blogs and some things to t- just to tell them what we were doing. I think we had about a week's notice in advance to get everyone kind of geared up. And then, uh, and then we did it. And then what happened was, I mean, it was incredible <laughs> to, to wake up because I had gone to bed the night before and then Ryan had woken up the next morning in the East Coast. And, and he just sort of watched it because uh, I had like posted the last blog post at like 2 a.m. Pacific time. And then he woke up at like whatever, 6 a.m. Eastern time. And he was just sort of watching it climb. Oh my and gosh. he, yeah, uh, so he was like on Twitter and everything. He was sort of like manning the fort, you know, until I woke up. And <laughs> and, it, and and people were like getting it and retweeting it. And we had a Facebook event that had like 15,000 people on it. And it was People was, like to root for the underdog. They think, you know, and that's definitely, and, and as it went up in the rankings, people are like, oh, well, if I buy a copy, I'm helping this too. I'm helping. Exactly. And then when we got into the top 20, Amazon discretionarily slashed the price like oh, in half. Yeah, and yeah. so then all of a sudden it became like a, like a no brainer buy in, like $6 right. to like be part of this thing that's happening. So it was, it was really incredible. And then of course we started getting calls from and emails from people who are like, Wait, who are you? What are you doing? Like the people who pay attention to these things. Yeah. And, or they would say like, oh, we Googled you. We know who you are. This is amazing. Like how do we be in business with you? Like we got calls from oh, like wow. the, the Barnes & Noble buyers being mm-hmm. like, hey, like why is your book not in any of our catalogs? So it was pretty cool. Like it, it, I think it proved the point that we were out to prove, which is to say that there are people who who wanted this book. And And what we're most gratified by is that people who read it then liked it. Like, mm-hmm. we didn't trick people. We didn't say, like, buy our book as a scam. 
and they they read it and they were like, "Oh, I'm really glad that you I, I found this book." And if it's this, it goes back to that thing you were saying of it's an indie thing and it feels like I'm discovering this cool underground thing, so I'm going to be more inclined to share it. And I feel like I feel like uh, uh, to go back to comics for a second, there was there's a lot of hand wringing in comics that there's no gatekeeper on the internet. Like hmm. in a newspaper, there's the editor who chooses the things that, and, and curates the, the, the selection for you. And I think on the internet, it's, everyone's like, well, there's no gatekeeper. So everything is crap. Well, no, there is a gatekeeper. It's your friends. And you see and value the things that are presented to you by the sources you choose, which is the people you follow on Twitter, your friends on Facebook, the, the topics you read on Reddit, um, the blogs that you read that recommend things to you, there absolutely is still a filter. It's just a distributed filter. And it's and and you select the sources that you filter in and filter out. And so everybody now has this role of being the gatekeeper for the people in their sphere of influence, whether they're a blogger or just on Twitter or just on Facebook or have a website or an editor for a paper or have a podcast or whatever it is. And so this task now falls to – so everyone who likes our book, which was now however many thousand people, you know, kept spreading the word. And so the book did did very well and everybody was really excited about it and we were really excited about it. And we were able to strike some deals and we got um, the book into bookstores. Uh, where it's, so it's now sort of distributed in the traditional way and you can pick it up. You know, you can order it through all the regular book channels. But we also control a lot of it ourselves in, in – uh, so, for example, you can download the, the PDF of the book uh, for free from our website. It's just just get it. Yeah, I think that, I love that because that's a, there's so many people I've talked to about that too. Where like Cory Doctorow and and Max uh -huh. Temkin from uh, Cards Against Humanity, where you can download the full Cards Against Humanity set as a PDF, but it's a whole hassle to print and whatever. Yep. But it doesn't hurt them. And then I, if you get it in that form, people are like, oh, I really like this. Now I want to support it. I would like to have a print copy or print edition, then right. they go and buy the book. It seems like such a virtuous cycle, not a loss leader oh, or anything it, like that. I, I, I wholly agree. And I think what happens when you have free distribution of things, and I think it depends, to be honest, because I think there, I remember David Pogue uh, from the New York Times had a whole deal where he was giving away some of his books in an attempt to sort of like put to the test this idea of free distribution. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is he was giving away reference books. Yes. And I believe that reference books, you don't care about format, you just want information. In the case of something like a like a book that's a you know an anthology of short stories, you're gonna have people who read it and then can either A, pass it on, B, um, buy it as a gift for somebody, which I think is what happens a lot, is when somebody says, oh, I've read this. Uh, Uncle Bob will love this. I'm going to buy a copy for them. You have people who just want to support you. And I think ultimately what happens is that you reach a larger pool of people than you would otherwise. And so you're going to get more sales than you would otherwise in the best case because just the pool of people it reaches is larger and therefore the people who like it is larger than the people who have to pay money up front to take a risk on it. And I think the side benefit, the corollary to that is that the people who actually do pay money know what they're getting, which means that your percentage of dissatisfied customers is very low, <laughs> which means that your reviews on Amazon and these things that affect your sales are disproportionately positive because I, the people, people can, yeah, who don't like it, it they didn't buy it because they already knew they wouldn't like it from, be, from the beginning. And I feel like from a marketing yeah. perspective, that's 
like that's tremendously under underrated as a as a tool. I think you're right about the reference book thing too. Is is you don't go back to a reference book except when you need that particular fact. Most people don't read even a book about how to use a Mac. Once you figure out how to use a Mac, you don't go back and read it. You look one thing yeah, up. Yeah, it's of no value you, to you. You might tell someone else about it, but right, or you need that one piece of information, and people might download a pirated copy to get that one thing. Exactly. Then they don't buy the book because they, they the value to them is that one piece of information that almost seems reference material. Almost seems like facts that should be freely available, even though that's <laughs> not true. But it has that sense of like something that's out there that just happened. But when you create original work that's art or fiction or, or what have you, and also when the creators are directly involved like you are, there was no question that you giving the book away in free and PDF that that you guys had a connection to that, that it wasn't the miscellaneous company. So that project went phenomenally well. And we, we fast forward three years to right. now, which is the second edition. And, and you made a lot of different choices, including, I guess there's so many components here. First, you went with a publisher instead of self-publishing. Second, you before it came out, you launched the uh, Machine of Death game on Kickstarter, which was massively successful. And third, you didn't try to get a push on a specific bookstore at that point because you were going through multiple channels. So let's take pieces of this. So 2010, book is very successful. It's ticking along. You had this compelling notion there was more, there were more stories, right? Because you'd gotten 700 submissions, you'd published 30. Yeah. Uh, this new collection, This Is How You Die is the new collection. Did you have people like kind of beating down the doors or did you feel like there's more to do, more fun way or interesting way to explore this topic? We've only scratched the surface. Well, when we finally got the book out, like the day it was released, uh, the first book, we thought like, who finally, oh, this thing is done. <laughs> Can't wait for this to be over, just because it had been such a long process from 2007. Oh, well, you started the years, right? Yeah. And so, and it was a process that dragged in at times and, and it had to be sort of urged forward. And it was, uh, it just felt like such an accomplishment to be done with it that we were like, finally, we got this albatross off our plate, move on to the next thing, you know? But it turns out that, Oh, wait, like almost in a way, I think we had forgotten how good it was because we were just so eager to be done with it. <laughs> and people would just respond to it so, so immediately, which was like, it, it reminded us that like, oh, yeah, this is, this is, this is amazing that people actually see the thing that we saw in it to begin with. It, it got good reviews too. I mean, you were, you sort of mentioned that in passing earlier, but people, it wasn't just, a, you know, you said before, it wasn't a gimmick is that people, I mean, you selected, it was an edited collection. You, mm -hmm. you were able to call sort of a crowdsource thing that you got the best of people sending stuff in. And, uh, and the reviews of it were really very positive from uh, publications that aren't interested in the backstory. They might tell it and say, oh, these guys did this thing. But they're like, okay, here's what the stories are like. So it wasn't like this was some, eh, it was like there was a strong response to it as a work yes. of art as well. Yes. I, I, and and with that, again, that's the most gratifying part of it. There was actually, uh, I don't know if you know Jeff Vandermeer. Um, mm. He writes books. He just like he's an anthologist. And he also writes books like on writing and as well. He's one called Book Life, and um, mm. he writes a blog for Amazon called Omnivoracious that is like a book oh, review yeah. blog. And he, of course, had seen what we had done, and he had said, "Hey, uh, this is cool, but now send me a copy of the book so that we can actually <laughs> see if it's any good." And his review was like, "Guys, turned out it's good." <laughs> and that was actually like when we saw That's that, we were cool. like. This might be legit. Like this might be the thing that we are, that we can really like stand on. And like, and so we we did not have any pre press reviews, of course. And so a lot of places were not interested in reviewing the book after it was released. But the places that were were very complimentary. Uh, the AV Club gave us a, a B plus, I think, which is pretty good. And uh, we got uh, 
customer reviews on Amazon just they started flooding in by the just by the dozens and by the hundreds and you know I think we got so many that we were named by their algorithm on Amazon as a customer favorite of 2010. Oh, oh, that's uh, great. We like hit one of their top ten lists, which is pretty cool. And then people who read the book were so taken by it because many of them were they're new to the concept. They weren't around in 2007 when we had the first call for submissions or, or, or before that when the comic was published. And so they were saying like, we got a lot of messages saying, are you going to do another one? Because I would love to write a story that's oh. based on this machine of death oh, because the great. idea is so compelling. Like it spins out in all these different ways. And so after we things had settled down a little bit, uh, we decided, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And so we 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 kind of formalized things a little bit better the second time around. And we had gone back to our authors from the first book once it was successful, and we ended up selling the foreign versions and stuff in translation in in eight different languages. And so we went back and we gave them more money. And and we tried to do right by them. I'm going and, to applaud. I'm going to applaud now for the wonderful. <laughs> that's the thing. Is rising tides. Rising tide lifts all boats. And so the second time around, like we were able to offer a little more upfront, and sort of we knew what rights we needed a little bit better, and that sort of thing. We were kind of trying to approach it in a little bit more of a systematic way. And we had the call for submissions, and we got 2,000 submissions. Oh my gosh! And uh, from writers on every continent, including Antarctica, which is what I'm very proud of. <laughs> there was one guy who was, I think he was a firefighter with the Army Corps of Engineers or something. And he was in Afghanistan at the one time and he sent us a story from there. And then he went to, we were on the blog, we were like, we've got, we just got on Africa. Where's our Antarctica? <laughs> and this guy ended up going to McMurdo Station on assignment and he sent us a story from there. He's like, here you go. He sends a picture of himself by the sign and everything. Uh, so that was pretty great. Wait, so, can I, I, mean, yeah. I want to interrupt there for one second. Is, is, so you had you know, all these thousands of stories. The ones that weren't accepted, did people decide to publish them on Dinosaur Comics or on their blogs? What happened with those? Um, some of the people decided to publish them independently in whatever way they chose, either mm, on their mm-hmm. blog or as a Kindle single or in a Kindle anthology of their own work or whatever. And they those stories belong to them and they have every right to do so. Uh, some of us asked us, like, can we do this? And we... We basically took the line of saying, like, it's your story. You do what you want. Mm-hmm. It's nice if you include a little link to the site so people know what the context for the story is. Right. And and that you don't, like, call it Machine of Death, which is, like, the name of our existing book. But other than that, it's their own work, and they can, you know, they're, it's up to them. So people have chosen to submit it to other markets. There are a few Machine of Death stories that got published in other sci-fi markets until they started getting sick of it. Um, we, <laughs> like, we, no, no more machine of death. We have <laughs> um, Matt and I have sort of become a little bit more involved with the sci-fi community on the literary side uh, since the book came out, and Matt has had dozens of stories published now in other magazines, and so we've gotten to know some of the other anthologists and magazine editors, and so we hear about it. They're like, "Yep, we got another machine of death reject today." Oh my gosh! <laughs> or whatever. That's funny. So it's pretty funny. We have that problem at uh, at the magazine that I edit is um, uh, we write about tech you know sort of technology and culture and we've hit uh, peak typewriter uh, feature. Huh. There's there's two, we've had two, we can no longer run stories about typewriters because <laughs> there are everyone thinks they're the first. Huh? That would be well there are lots of different interesting stories but we'd have to change the name of the magazine to the typewriter. The typewriter think, but, magazine. Yes. Um, but yeah, and it was a much more challenging process, of course, because we, just the order of magnitude was increased. Mm-hmm. And we asked people specifically, like, look, we all read the first book so we know what stories in that book do so where else can you go with this idea what's the next step beyond or or the step deeper or the step more abstract from the core idea that we sort of explored a lot of in the first book and so 
that's what we were looking for specifically, and th- those are the stories that we were most attracted to the second time around. And there are, of course, well-worn trails that, you know, when you have 2,000 people writing on one topic, you see a lot of the same stuff over and over because it's the low-hanging fruit. But there were some other stories that really shone in their own way, and uh, and so those are the stories that we picked for the book. So then the, the question of the publisher was because at this point we had uh, a, a, an agent who had worked with me on prior projects and actually was unable to sell Machine of Death originally. Mm-hmm. And then when it came out, again, I wrote back to him and, and he was able to like – it's actually kind of funny. I uh, The day it came out, we had gotten all these emails from different people and different offers and I thought – you know what? Maybe I should talk to an agent that I already know personally and have, you know, and already trust from working with previously. And so I called him up and I, I said, "Hey, uh, big news!" And he goes, "Yeah." And I go, "Oh, you know, you, you've heard?" And he goes, "No." And I said, <laughs> "Machine of Death is number one on Amazon." And he said, "What?" And then I hear click, 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 click. <laughs> David, this is amazing. How did you do this? <laughs> and I said, well, we, we, I, we asked people to buy the book and they did. And uh, he was like, well, let, let me make some calls. And so like he was able to like, that's where we got like distribution deal and the, and the deals in translation and everything else. And so for oh, the second great. book. So, he, that, that, so that happened. So the, the success on Amazon led directly to then that. Absolutely. Brought, yep. That's great. Okay. Absolutely. And then you'd be able to go through more conventional means because he had that in hand to take to shop around. Exactly. Great. And okay. there were things where he's like, do you want to sell the audiobook? And I was like, well, we already are doing the audiobook as a free podcast with all mm-hmm. the different authors reading their stories. So no, we don't want to do a commercial audiobook. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had to make decisions about this. He's like, do you want to sell the ebook rights? And I was like, no, because we have this free PDF. We don't want some the rights to be encumbered by some other company or, you know, and a Kindle file, you can put it up yourself. You don't need some third party to do it for you. And um, so we made these decisions that we thought were in the best strategic in, uh, interest of the property right. and that would give, sort of treat the readers with the most respect, uh, you know, uh, as possible. So when the, the prospect for the second book came around, uh, the agent said, do you want me to try and see if anybody is interested? And then you can decide if it's an offer that's worth your time or not. And we said, yes, we will. Let's see. And in the meantime, we had kind of done some back-of-the-envelope calculations about how well we did with the first book. Um, and we had had some missteps. Like, I think we had the misfortune of, like, releasing into the bookstore world right as Borders was going bankrupt. And so, oh, like, they yeah. just, like, they they basically took, like – pallets of our books and just said, thank you, we're bankrupt. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, ah, are you serious? You're an unsecured creditor because you didn't loan them money. You only gave them books. Yeah, and so there were like, it was almost, it was kind of funny how we were like, we're these indie rebels. Look how well we did. Let's go legit. And then like legit just like turned belly up in front of us. And it was like, maybe we made a mistake. Um, So it's, but this time around, we were like, all right, well, knowing that, we have an idea of what we can do on our own in some theoretical possible future. What is the offer that can, you know, will it match that or will it be greater or lesser or just how does it compare? Right. And, and we found this publisher, Grand Central, who they were really into this idea. Like they read the manuscript for the book. They really loved it. The editor there. And they were really into the sorts of strange things that we wanted to do with it. And I was nervous, to be honest with you. I'm like, you have to understand that we are not magicians. Like, we just do (laughs) things that we think are smart at the time, but it doesn't mean we have this magical system of book promotion that you can now relax and tap into. 
you know, and, and, um, in fact, there was people who emailed me saying like, I saw you got to number one on Amazon. I have a book on gardening for dogs. How do I re- replicate your success? And it's like, that's not quite exactly how it works. Um, so we were very, we were cautious and it did involve some compromises here and there. Um, I mean, one, one of them being like, it just takes longer to put the book through the trade. It, it added a whole year to the production schedule, uh, which we just had to deal with. And then, but there were also great advantages. Uh, the fact that it's available in every retail market that you get books from. It's not limited to one place. It's in every, they, they did an audiobook of their own. That sounds amazing. You know, it's in all the, uh, the different, it's in airport bookstores, which is like incredible. And the book is, is just, you know, it got all the pre, uh, all the, the regular sort of pre-press reviews and, in, in the places that publishers can reach that independent dudes cannot really. And so all of these advantages are, are really, you know, they're material and they add up to, to what I think will be a net benefit for the, for the property and for the fans because now this book is available in more places and can, can, can sort of become, you know, just have this, this broader reach. And for the writers who are in the book, I think it's valuable to them as well. And if we end up, you know, doing well with the book, then now that's a credit for these writers that they can keep forever. Yeah, suddenly you're, you're mainstream at some level too, right? Is that it's that it, you have the yeah. success. The Amazon number one thing was great and it wasn't a stunt. It was real and you sold a bunch of books and then got it out there. But this is like the, the, uh, I mean, a lot of people going to a publisher, if they go the first time, they're not going to get this time of treatment. You brought in a, a second book in a series that, that is a known quantity that did well and the publisher puts its efforts behind you instead right. of in, – in, I mean, that's the big problem is books that they don't know they're going to do well. You don't get author tours. You don't get support. In this case, you have the sort of full support of this kind of publisher that's an imprint of a you know bigger firm, but like they're focused on you and your efforts and actually doing all the stuff that's the hard, painful, yeah. ugly parts of publishing they could take off yeah. your hands. That's the perfect thing because usually you know a lot of people wind up finding they – get involved with intermediaries because they don't know if there's another option. You guys came to it with knowing all the options and knowing all the ugliness. Yeah, knowing how difficult it is to, to, to do it. Yeah, because you, it's also when you want to sell 100,000 books or conceivably you could sell hundreds of thousands of books, it's a different thing than when you thought you might only sell several thousand. And it's right. like you will make less money on it because the publisher takes a bigger cut. The amount of time your life will not be destroyed by trying right. to fulfill 100,000 books. Yeah, I, I, I and so we definitely – Basically, we thought the worst we could do is as well as we did before. And the oh, best we could great. do is just this unlimited ceiling. So it felt like the right decision to make. And and, uh, and I believe that uh, now that the book is out and people have read it and people have been just blown away by it. Like the reviews have, have been nothing short of, of incredible. And everyone who has read it so far that I have seen has agreed that they it's better than the first one, which is what we were trying to do. I should point out we're – we're recording this just a few days after the book came out, and uh, and so we need to record two different versions. One <laughs> is the uh, so hey, that's terrific! You got on the New York Times bestseller list for paperback uh, fiction. Congratulations! Oh, thanks. Yeah, we we knew all along that it was going to be in the bag for the bestseller. On the other one is I'm so sorry you didn't get on the New York Times bestseller list for paperback nonfiction or fiction, I d- but I d- it's I done dem- so well though. I demand a recount because I think like, we, there was a problem in the in the ballot. I don't know how we'll, it works. We'll drop in it depending. <laughs> This is Schrodinger's cat sure, feature in the podcast. It'll drop in the right universe as necessary. Yeah. So, so, but that's something that we like. The just the idea of being on the New York Times list is a thing that is a, a you know, a possibility at this yeah. point. That is not a thing that we could have done before. And again, it's a thing that will now be a thing that those authors 
can have for you know oh and hopefully God, to benefit inc- them incredible thing to put on your on your resume and you know people then people you're you're known by millions more people know who you yeah. are they know the name the the thing that i didn't know until we started talking here is i knew the book was going to come out and i kind of missed the game and then i went back and said oh wait a minute you guys did this other crazy thing in the middle of this is you created a, a merch a, a, a machine of death game Went to Kickstarter for $23,000 and raised almost $557,000. Is there a time at which you stop being um, overwhelmed by the scale of success that you maybe didn't anticipate? I just, the needle just tapped out just instantly. <laughs> like it just pegged on like about day two. And I was just in a stupor for the rest of it. <laughs> There's no more adrenaline. Left ju- I ran there. out. I just, I ran out of emotions. I had to invent new ones. Like I was just, <laughs> I was bledizzled for most of it. Oh my gosh. But that was, that was a partly, I'm guessing, A, there was some demand for it. B, you guys all sort of like tabletop games. It's clear as clear history from, you look at the web comics world and, and you folks in particular. But this seemed like a, like a little bit of a promotional lead into the book coming out too. So you'd hoped it would give a boost to the book? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the idea behind the game, I mean, the first idea behind the game was, I think it would be rad to make a game. And like there was, fun. I mean, the, the, the core of it is I think on its merits, it's, it's a fun game and it's something I'm very proud of. And it came about from being sort of willing to take risks and do interesting things with this Machine of Death brand over the last few years in terms of like whether it's products or events that we've staged or it's like interactive things that we have encouraged people to participate in. And one of those was I, we made a bunch of like death prediction cards, like as you would find from the Machine of Death. That have a method of death on them. And I just made a bunch of them just promotionally to give out. Oh, and then oh, I, yeah. and they're all different. And then I realized holding them in my hands, like, this is a deck of cards. Like, this is like, <laughs> a, you could, you could play a game with this. And so then that began a long process of figuring out, like, what is the game that you can play with this? And we had several iterations of it and we had people coming over to test it. And we had, you know, PDFs you could download from the website and you could buy the decks of cards and you could, you know, try and play a game with your friends and, and this sort of thing just iterated over and over until it, it evolved into something that was a little bit more complex and uh, and takes the form of this sort of storytelling collaborative card game mm-hmm. where you try and – you play an assassin and you try and kill people based on how they are fated to die. Oh. And you have this limited set of items at your disposal and you have to create this sort of like wily e. Coyote contraption in order to trap the person and kill them based on just your limited like arsenal but it has to be in the like somehow related to their death prediction otherwise it won't work of course and so among the people that I played it with my my friends Chris Straub and uh, some of the people involved with with uh, Machine of Death it's just a ton of fun if you're into that kind of like storytelling improv kind of game and so we decided my brilliant idea was to put the game up have it uh, produced in time for the book release in July, and then everyone would, who got the game would then know about the book. So that was my brilliant plan. And what mm-hmm. I did not account for was the fact that it would be just like not just successful, but like <laughs> this is crazy, to some right? absurd degree <laughs> that was in, that was completely but baffling. And it uh, there's it ha- an amazing demand for. Card games. I think there must be this ridiculous untapped, uh, untapped demand. If you look at, it, and there's no, it's, I, when I say this, it sounds like it's not like people will buy anything, but it's more like Cards Against Humanity. Nobody knew those guys before they launched their project, and it went, you know, 
crazy mm-hmm. and it's still going crazy and crazier. This project, you know, uh, people knew the book. Obviously, the book sold well. People know all the people involved. But the scale of this is just – it means people are really <laughs> longing for that kind of personal sitting around with a bunch of people kind of experience that the internet is apparently supposed to destroy <laughs> maybe is actually improving and increasing. Well, I, I definitely think that there are a few things that worked in our favor. One is exactly what you said, that this is now the right time for this sort of product in general. Uh, and there are people on Kickstarter in particular who are gaming fans who are looking mm. for new games to experiment mm-hmm. with because a risk on Kickstarter is cheaper now than in importing something from Germany uh, oh, or wherever their games, new games are being developed. And so Kickstarter has become sort of the proving ground for independent games of all sorts. And that has become the case in the last year or two in a very, very, very uh, clear way. And so... There is a a group of people looking for games, period. There's also, as you mentioned, a group of people who understands Machine of Death and and likes the concept and wants to support that things related to Machine of Death. There are also people who are become intrigued by the Machine of Death concept and now want the game based on it and then go back to discover the book, you know, which we saw happen. So just the core idea of it, regardless of the the expression of the game, uh, I think... We we tried very, very hard to present it in a very interesting and compelling way, in a way that, you know, I don't know that every Kickstarter quite is able to do, just because of, again, some of the resources and expertise that, that me and my colleagues uh, bring to it. We just tried to just make it really professional with all the, like, interact, you know, like very exciting videos and making lots of updates. And we had, you know, lots of sort of challenges and games that, that kind of ran through the campaign to make backers feel like they were really involved in it. We added a bunch of interesting tiers in response to backer uh, requests. And so we tried to make everybody tried to be as responsive and, and engaging and, and uh, on the ball as we could during the duration of the campaign. And then another thing that I think is really important speaks to what the first Machine of Death book proved, which is that you can, you know, you can reach an audience if you have cultivated an audience. Mm-hmm. And so between me and Ryan and then Chris, uh, who was the sort of co-creator of the game, Chris Straub, we also had many, many other cartoonists contribute like bonus game cards to the right. game that people got included. And the more we raised, the more of those we were able to commission. And so there was this sort of like web comics reading and sympathetic audience that when you loop all these creators in is a a huge number of people, like just a physical mass of people. And then these may not be people who know that they want a game until you show them a game. And then they go, Oh, I, you know what? I do want that. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I feel like, you know, to loop this back into what we were talking about, having an individual point of view and, and, and a creative expression, it's hard to look at a group of people and go, what can I give those people? that they will like and what can I sell them? It's easier to say, what's the thing that I don't care if anybody else likes it, I think it's cool. And then you reach the people who go, oh, huh, I never would have thought of that. You're right. That is cool. It's the first time I've seen that. As opposed to, oh, another game that's trying to pander <laughs> to the geek market. You're or like, whatever. You're, you're, it's the, there's the meh audience, which nobody likes. Right. And the meh audience doesn't like themselves very much. It's the people <laughs> who are open to new experience. And then it's got to be delightful. I mean, for you as a creator, it's wonderful to find an audience. For an audience, it's wonderful for them to find a community and, yeah. and, and find that affinity. Um, uh, so you've, on this game, I guess this actually puts you into a different realm now because you've got the book out. 
out, and you're now got a, a card game that you're sort of taking around and showing to people. Um, it'll be it's not produced yet, right? It's not shipping yet, but you've got prototypes. Yeah, well, I mean, what ended up happening, like my my giant like promotional idea sort of backfired when this thing just became <laughs> yeah. gargantuan, which is a good problem to have, I would say. But it just made the timeline stretch out over the course of a little bit longer than I had expected. So we do expect it to be out in the fall, and we do have a lot of people who are interested in the game who are able to hear about the book via the game, but the game itself will not premiere for That's another couple of months. It's who, which, yeah, who's leading who there. And uh, right. so uh, by the time this airs, I think uh, upcoming will still be uh, Gen Con in Indianapolis. Yep, we'll be which there. Which is a great, sounds like a great uh, gaming event for tabletop folks. And then the PAX, the vast PAX empire will descend on Seattle at the end of August with, I don't know how, 60,000 people? I don't know. It takes over the at city least now. 10, at least about. 10 people minimum. At least 10 people. <laughs> they started with, I think, 300, and now it's, they have like, what, 200,000 350, people? 350, got to be. They are amazing. Amazing what people. they've done, too, there. And, okay, so, of course, I have to ask, so final question here. Yes, of course. Talked about all this. When does the Kickstarter come for the Machine of Death itself? The, the actual, the, the, the device? Yeah, because, I mean, of course, everybody wants one of these now. Yeah, well, so. you know, I had someone email me, actually, just the other day saying, we figured out how we can build a machine of death. Like you just gotta, <laughs> if we can raise this money, we can do it. And I said, what's the rewards? Do people yeah, yeah. get their own machine, or do they just get their? You're gonna ship yeah. one of these to everybody's house. And actually, they said we'll put it up in a mall and we'll set up a hidden camera. We'll see oh who uses God. it. And I thought, I said, I think maybe that's illegal. <laughs> I think maybe it's illegal. So uh, the, the answer is, of course, imminently. I have a prototype here that was sent to me. I don't know from where. And when I stick my finger in, the card comes out. It just says Zeppelin. I don't know what that huh. means. What does yours say when you stick your finger in the prototype? Zeppelin. Mine, mine, mine is actually pretty good. It says Antics. Which Antics. Is, I feel like is both sufficiently vague but also oddly specific to the, the life I've found myself leading. <laughs> that's that's Yours, wonderful. I'm afraid, is just – does it mean you're just full of hot air? I guess a Zeppelin I, I, is not a hot air balloon. It's, it's more – it, it's a lifting gas. So it may mean that I'm going to die in 1941 on the Empire State Building. But Oh, man. From I'm your not, lips wait. to God's ears. <laughs> That we think, David. Thank you so much. You have had. I feel like we've only actually scratched the surface of part of your life, too. But it's a very rich and I just I love the fact that how much you are following your dreams and visions, and that you can make a living at it. It's a wonderful thing, and thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're very kind to say so, and to and to and to have me on to chat. And I hope that uh, that everybody listening to this will follow their dreams, unless they are violent ones, in which case repress them <laughs> for life. <laughs> Thanks, David. My pleasure. If you'll be in Portland, Oregon, on Wednesday, September 18th, 2013, The New Disruptors and The Magazine are having a small shindig with some live interviews, drinks, and mingling. Visit newdisrupt.org slash pdx2013 for details and a link to RSVP a yes or a maybe, or email us at show at newdisrupt.org. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. 
We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask that you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.